This is No Nazar, and I'm your host, Zana Pamid, and welcome to the show where we spill the chai on the diaspora. This is the No Nazar Show, where we'll talk about how you're fly, and if you really feel alone, just tune in and sip some chai. This past July marked the 150th Canada Day celebration. In short, we were celebrating 150 years of Canada being federated or since confederation. Now, the celebrations were a pretty big deal. Politicians, celebrities and lots and lots of different corporations were pretty much honking the 150 horn. Whether or not Starbucks having a 150 special is late stage capitalism is up to you guys to decide. Despite all the funfare and excitement for Canada 150, something pretty significant was happening in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Dalhousie University. Masuma Khan, a Dalhousie student and student politician, was at the epicenter of a massive debate that caught the national interest. A member of the student council executive, Masuma Khan urged the Dalhousie Student Union to abstain from Canada 150 celebrations in a show of solidarity with the indigenous peoples of Canada and all of its territories. For those of you who don't know, Canada has been the perpetrator and the oppressor of numerous crimes against indigenous people that still continue to this day. The response to 150 celebrations prompted the very valid question of what are we actually celebrating here? And the term fuck 150 was born. Khan showed her solidarity with the indigenous people and the Nova Scotia young progressive conservatives reacted by saying that Masuma Khan should help instill pride in our country rather than push for a boycott of a national holiday. Now, it's important to note that Dalhousie University is not really running or opening or hosting any events during the summertime. Khan responded with a question. Why should she be proud of colonization and over 400 years of genocide? Khan published her comments on Facebook, which prompted a formal complaint to the university. Now, at the time of recording, the complaint has been dropped. However, all of the hateful messages, the op-eds in nationally syndicated newspapers and blogs haven't stopped. And all of this happened this past July. It's nearly 2018 now, and people are still throwing hateful and violent and Islamophobic and anti-whatever-you-can-think-of messages towards Masuma. Talking to Masuma made me realise the importance of activism, in the fact that activism doesn't just have to be for your own people. If you know what it feels like to be oppressed, to be marginalised and to be unfairly discriminated against, you can recognise that in other people and in other groups as well. Which is why it's so important that our activism is intersectional. And that's something that a lot of people who published a lot of these hateful messages against Masuma fail to realise. We fight because we care 
and we care because we know how fucking shit it is to not be treated like a human being simply for the fact that you exist. I've really come across someone as passionate and as dedicated as she is. So please, without further ado, enjoy the show. I am joined via Skype with Masuma Khan. She's a fourth year international development studies student at Dalhousie University, and she also serves as the academic and external VP at the Dalhousie Student Council. How are you, Masuma? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So right off the bat, could you describe to me what Unlearn 150 means? So Unlearn 150 was a campaign uh, that was created at the Dahazi Student Union. Uh, so Unlearning 150 essentially meant unlearning the whitewashed history uh, and narrative that's very accepted and widely talked about in Canada. So it was time to unlearn that narrative that, you know, this is just this amazing uh, nation when reality was that, you know, it was founded on genocide and white supremacy. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so in your Facebook post, which I believe has since been deleted, um, I personally really enjoyed it. I read it and I was like, yeah, this is, seems yeah. bang on to me. Um, but what initially prompted that Facebook post? What was it in a response to? It was in a response to the racist backlash that I was facing at the council level. So what I did on top of the campaign is I, I drafted a motion with some Indigenous students. And uh, the motion was essentially that the Dahazi Student Union wouldn't partake in the celebration of Canada 150 and wouldn't give any funding towards the promotion of any events related and, and wouldn't give any space in, in within our union. And it was just like just our union because that's the only thing we can really control in the university right um and once i did that uh of course there was a very fragile uh counselor who told me that if i didn't believe in the legitimacy of canada i could you know uh revoke my rights to the charter and 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 denounce canada's uh legitimate multiculturalism um what it like when someone who's coming from a culture is telling you that you know systemic racism is an issue and you're saying no but we have multiculturalism it it doesn't work that way so i was really frustrated with with that and when that happened at council no one said anything so here i am you know being questioned again at this table by you know someone who's extremely fragile with their privilege um, having to defend myself and I was just I was so irritated I was so frustrated I said that's it I'm gonna reach out into my support networks over across the nation and and reach out to um, fellow thinkers of decolonial thought um, and 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 have some support but instead I got more <laughs> backlash <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and one thing that I think is very important to point out is that you yourself are a Halifax native. You were born and brought up in Canada. Yeah, for sure. I was, yeah, raised in, born and raised in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I was born literally five minutes of a walk away from my university. That's where the, the children's hospital was. So I was literally born on Dalhousie campus. It's the hospitals within the campus. You have Dalhousie in your blood, for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> my mother's gone there, my sister's gone there, my whole family's gone there. Wow. So, um, Michael Smith's op-ed in the National Post was, well, one of the things was, was very infuriating to read. 
Uh, I'm sure you've read it, but for the benefit of our listeners, uh, Michael Smith is a uh, graduate student at Dalhousie, and he had written an op-ed for the National Post that essentially glorified how Canada is this wonderful union of um, multiculturalism and anyone can succeed in anything if they just (laughs) try hard enough. Um, And while saying that, he also, it was a thinly veiled attempt, I feel, to target you personally. Um, (laughs) In the op-ed, he alleges alleges that you had uh, smirked at Mary MacDonald, who was the uh, rep for differently abled students at Dalhousie. (laughs) Um, so do you feel, uh, so his that piece... Mary McDonald was the student that told me to revoke my rights. To revoke your rights, yeah. So when she was saying that to me, I smiled. Okay, exactly. Yeah. So it was a smile, it was in a smirk. But he, yeah. how he had written it in the, in the article was that she was standing up for Canada and you had smirked. You were this sort of evil person who just didn't care and you had your own agenda that's how he had written it so he had written that on i believe it was published on the 30th of september um do you feel like his piece fueled a lot of the fire of harassment that was targeted his piece, his piece was um published on july 10th um yeah I, his piece actually once his piece came out because the university hadn't confirmed a complaint yet but his piece came out on july 10th and then on the friday of that week uh, they solidified that Michael Smith was coming forward with a complaint. Um, so yeah, as soon as he did that, I started getting emails, violent emails. I started getting, uh, you know, phone calls of people yelling at me, asking me why I haven't assimilated to Canadian culture and I need to get rid of my hijab and, you know, do, do these things. And, um, yeah, I took that, you know, with my counsel, I took that forward to the vice provost when she came forward with a formal complaint by Michael Smith and, you know, uh, my counsel showed the vice provost, Arigal Sheba, uh, that, you know, I was getting these co- uh, kinds of comments and I was getting these kinds of um, messages. And she told me in front of my counsel uh, that that had nothing to do with my case. In fact, it had nothing to do with my case. Absolutely nothing. It's not relevant is what she told me. So to clarify, it wasn't relevant that um, because you had exercised your your freedom of political speech um, and had then received harassing death threats and vile uh, messages and all of these things that that in no way impinged on uh, the case itself even though a lot arguably some of the uh, more a lot of the hateful messages were directly in response to the fact that uh, Smith had written that op-ed about you. So has Smith received any kind of reprimand or has no. he even apologized to you or no. reached out to you? No. I see. And it has he yeah. defended himself and the university has prioritized him over me. Right. And that is so disappointing. Like, that mm-hmm. is kind of the classic case. And, and, and it's hard because, you know, in so many communities, it's in so many spheres. And you, obviously, you also inhabit lots of different spheres yourself as a Muslim woman who's also uh, Canadian, mm-hmm. that uh, at every turn it feels like uh, our experience is denied, right? Mm. Yeah, well, you're not, you're not really from here. No one believes I'm from Nova Scotia. You know, the, my own, the president of the university, actually, the first time he remembers meeting me, when he formally introduced himself to me, he asked me where I was from. And I said, Halifax. And he said, oh, cool. We're in Halifax. Now, if you know Halifax, Halifax is segregated based on socioeconomic, like, like you can tell. 
what someone's background is if you know where they live in Halifax. So that for me was like, what a nice power play you're doing, Mr. President, the first time you remember meeting me, though I've been protesting you for years. Wow. <laughs> wow. So he was just trying to fit you into a box, basically. Yeah, and he checked me. He checked me totally. He checked me off that, that list. So much of the harassment that was targeted at you, targeted at you um, what sort of responses have you received, particularly from other racialized communities? And I bring this up because uh, when I had posted on my own Twitter that I would be interviewing you, mm-hmm. um, I have a large Pakistani following um, yes. on Twitter. And uh, a lot of them had said vehemently disagreed with the fact that I was interviewing you or that I was in support of your views in terms of Unlearn 150 and the work that you do. And the reason for that is because they said that Canada is uh, not the US, Canada is not the UK or France, Canada is this place where we have Justin Trudeau and like there was a full yep. sentence after that, like that solves all of our problems. So how have you been able to kind of come to grips with other racialized communities criticizing you for your actions? Well, I've just been educating them on their own history. You look at Pakistan and India. We were a colonized people, even Afghanistan, we were colonized people. We have these structures that they have embedded within our societies, within us. That's how long their influence has, has, has twisted ourselves, that we, we can't even see what this government is doing. You're telling me that Canada is this amazing place where we can spend millions of dollars on fireworks and not address 172 indigenous communities that don't have dr- clean drinking water. These are children. The, the government of Canada is committing genocide right now to the indigenous people of Canada. So you tell me that this is this amazing land. Yeah, it saved us. But has it? We've, been, we've become so selfish that we can't even see what's happening in this land that has given us safety. What are we scared of? If we have rights as Canadians, we should be able to say, no, I don't agree with what you're doing. Because I'm also from a colonized place. And this isn't okay. And I'm going to teach my children that this land is stolen land. And this land, this country was built on on the murder, on the raping, on the pillaging, on the genocide of indigenous people. When we're killed, we care so much about it. But when other people are killed, we don't, we don't give a damn. How is this where it's supposed to be an ummah? We're supposed to be talking about social justice. This is also a part of Islam that people forget about. Look at Malcolm X. Look at his whole enlightenment of how he found Islam. That's, that's, that's the Islam we're supposed to be teaching, not the Islam that, oh, we're safe now. We can be Muslim. No, we can't. The Naqab ban just happened in Quebec. What are you talking about? This stuff is happening here. This is not, white supremacy just isn't in America. White supremacy is throughout this world. You can thank colonization for that too. Yeah. I think the point that you brought up is so, so important. You know, people love to say that uh, racism doesn't exist in Islam. Um, I recently recorded another episode where I talked about Arab supremacy and the fact that this is still relevant. Um, and what's interesting is in like in our masjids uh, uh, during uh, khutbahs and stuff, we love to make dua for, uh, as Canadian Muslims, we love to make dua for uh, 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 Palestine. And of course, it's a very valid cause. It's a cause that's very near and dear to many hearts. And I never, I would never even assume to mitigate that. But I feel that if you are going to protest against the apartheid in Palestine, if you're going to argue about the stolen land in Palestine, mm-hmm. then you have to also recognize that as Canadians, we also live on stolen land. Yeah. We are also living, we are in occupation of stolen land. 
this is apartheid. Apartheid is apartheid. You can't you can't separate it. But I don't know what it is that we see different, and maybe it's our own blindness that we we we're prior. Yes, you know there are Muslim brothers, but still we are taught that we're everyone's brother, that we are everyone's sister, that we are a community, that we are one ummah, and we're supposed to live next to our neighbors who have different faiths and that they worship what they worship and we worship what we worship. That's the kind of faith that we're supposed to be dealing with. But instead, you know, we prioritize, like, I just don't understand how we can, as as brown immigrants, come into this land for safety to get rid of the, the places where we have lived and displace indigenous folks and have more privileges than them and then not talk about it. Because if, if anyone has any ounce of respect, this is what they would do. Imagine someone coming into Pakistan uh, doing genocide, only two percent of the uh, of the land is now given to Pakistanis, and and their children don't have access to education. They don't have access to clean water. They their women are getting raped, murdered. No one gives a damn about them. Imagine that. Imagine that sort of society where your your people are dying from suicide. They have so much trauma in their life from being in residential schools and trying to get their heritage and culture stripped away from them. Imagine if a Pakistani puts himself in that in that state and then critically thinks about it, they'll have a totally different idea. We know that the even the the partition did not work well. We know that it didn't work well. We know that they divided and conquered us. We know that they did it to us and we accepted it. How can we let them do it when we're displacing others? It's so heartless, you know? I can't take it. <laughs> So to kind of bring it back to the indigenous um, cause, how did you first become involved in the indigenous? Because this is an like uh, so the viewership or the listenership I should say of No Nazar is uh, mm. fairly diverse. Is in uh, not all of uh, my listeners are Canadian. Um, so one thing that's interesting to note is we're not taught about the indigenous abuse in schools. I remember I wasn't taught about it. I was taught about the beaver trade and. Um, uh, Louis Saint Laurent um, yeah. at some point uh, but I was never taught about the abuse um, so how did you uh, get involved with and how was what was your first engagement with uh, sort of handling I think you know my mother used to take me to protest as a child and also when I was a child growing up in Halifax no one knew what I was really they had no idea I remember being at a multicultural festival and like the Mi'kmaq women taking me because they thought they were talking to me, and I, I didn't understand. I was like, no, my, my father's that brown man, the, the other kind of brown man. Like, you know, and I didn't know how to explain it. But I think when, you know, you, when you learn about the history, and my mother's, a, a, like, a critical thinker and is, has her master's in education and is, like, d did political science and sociology. So when you have this sort of, mother who's teaching about real Canadian history and has friends from all over and you know um, it sort of opens your mind and then when you go into university you know I was really sad that I didn't have that education in high school too because all I got was a paragraph and sure we might have watched a documentary um, but it wasn't enough I didn't actually get to meet an uh, indigenous person here firsthand you know what's happened to this land why uh, they're named uh, Mi'kmaq and why, what their creation story is and these are things that I've learned um, and taken the time to learn because I've, I've also I think what's, what's drawn me this way is I've recognized our own colonized history so when I recognized and did more, more looking into the 
the history of Afghanistan and how the British rule and the, my family's legacy from there and how the British and, and colonialism has essentially allowed my family to migrate from Afghanistan. They were then imprisoned in British India. They then fled to Pakistan after partition. And then after that, they came to Canada. We've gone from colonized land to colonized land to colonized land to colonized land. You know, it's, it's, it's not hard to see it when you know it, right? Mm -hmm. So it was for me, it was when I started getting more involved, I think, in trying to learn more about other things in the world. I, I, I recognize, you know, different histories and I open my mind to things that I wasn't really thinking about. And, you know, it's, it's also like making new friends, like throughout the world and like traveling throughout Nova Scotia and meeting different indigenous communities because you see them, mm -hmm. you see, you meet indigenous people, you will, you, you, they're in our schools, but they're not supported enough. And me as a vice president, I see that. Me as a as a as a Muslim woman of color, I see that. I can see it. I'm undersupported. These like these indigenous youth are so undersupported, and they have they're taxed every day. They have to um, validate their identity every day and tell people. People ask them, "What makes you indigenous to this land?" I was born here. Do we ask that to Chinese people? Do we ask that to uh, Pakistanis or Indians? Do we ask that to anybody? To Italians? What makes you Italian, man? Do we do we ask them that? No, but for indigenous people, we constantly have to validate them and say, no, well, your identity, you're only half native. This is how messed up our system is. We're policing the identities of the indigenous people here. And, and, and people are, like, we're continuing this government allowing indigenous people to continue to lose their culture. And that's just a further, just a dehumanization. Mm. Um, I live in southern Ontario. Uh, growing up, I didn't encounter a single um, uh, First Nations or uh, Aboriginal person. Um, so for me, my very first experience was actually when I was in a group um, discussion at U of T, which was where I did my undergrad, and uh, it was to do with Aboriginal rights. Um, so I think for many Canadians, the issue isn't visible, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. Um, there are reserves in the area I live in, but again, I think many people don't make the connection that the reason why we don't see a lot of Aboriginals is yeah. because uh, they're completely denigrated from the wider community, and that's through the systemic violence that has been perpetrated by Canada. Totally. I think uh, for a lot of people, um, uh, and, and the reason why I did this show was really to kind of highlight sort of the parallels between uh, being an immigrant or being a second generation kid or third mm -hmm. generation and understanding that um, if you're going to be an activist about Islamophobia, about colorism, about um, just uh, about any sort of racialized identity, if you're mm. in Canada, you have to care about Aboriginal rights because there is a connection. And, and it, I find it very, personally, I find it very hard to make my community understand. I mean, I recently had an experience, a run-in where I tried to make a group of, uh, uh, a, a Pakistani uh, group, I, and I won't name names only because I, I will yeah, we'll face potential we'll legal backlash. Yeah. But, um, uh, essentially, I tried to make them come to grips with their inherent anti-blackness as South Asians. And they mm. refused. 
They refused to acknowledge it. They uh, were incredibly rude and incredibly disrespectful about it. And it wasn't that I felt upset that I felt targeted. I felt more upset because I was like, you know, I've given you solid concrete evidence and you still won't accept it. So, I mean, just, and again, it's sort of coming back to that original question. How do we make our communities uh, address issues like Aboriginal rights, like uh, internal issues, like uh, our shadism or anti-blackness, but I'll root it in Aboriginal rights because this is your, uh, your um, passion. How do we make them care? How do we make them understand that it's important? I think, you know, if, if, if we're, we're talking to like Muslims, mm-hmm. if we're talking to Muslims, we know at the end of the day, we have to uh, talk to our, our creator. And we know the oppressor will be oppressed on the day of judgment. And if we allow in this like bystander approach of allowing this oppression, I can't tell you what God's going to do to you if you believe in a creator. I, I can't. I need to go into my own grave. I need to make sure that I'm doing right by every single kind of people. Because when I meet my creator, I can say, you know what? I did my best to make sure that people had justice. I did my best to speak my voice even when people were trying to shut me up. I did my best even when people were saying that they're going to kill me. I did my best and I said it. And I wasn't afraid to. And people, people, you know, um, can can call it what it is or call it whatever they want. But that's that's essentially, um, you know, the... The thought behind it is it's it's such a simple one. When you say something as 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 simple as human decency or respect, you know, if 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 you were a guest into someone's uh, home, how would you treat them? Mm-hmm. This is their land. It's a basic concept, so basic. So it's like it's like how can you not get it? That's that's the most frustrating part. And you know when you're talking about anti-blackness and shadism. They don't understand, like, that's where that internalized colonialism is. That's where that not understanding Aboriginal or Indigenous rights comes from, is because these structures that have taken over our homeland have definitely um, interrupted the way in which we... That that anti-blackness, that shadism, that not understanding in, in Indigenous rights comes from in, being in, internal, like, internalizing colonialism, internalizing white supremacy because why is it we can't deal with darker skin tones who told us that we weren't beautiful who told us that you know uh having rights in in our land and having sovereignty was something that we couldn't accomplish and why do we think it's impossible for indigenous people to accomplish it here oh because you know what we're in the white man's world we've accepted it that's it we should we should we should assimilate well, I should use this fair and lovely I should tell my daughter not to go out in the in the sun I should tell my daughter that you know uh, indigenous people have access to education the, 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 the government gives them so much money the government's giving more money to fireworks you know what I mean it's yeah. it's it's just yeah. ridiculous it's ridiculous and and that's like that's when I would look at, at a brown person and say hey you are literally the oppressor in this in this situation and you're 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 doing that straight up and i'm not gonna answer for you you're gonna have to know how you're gonna answer to whoever it is you answer to so you mentioned earlier um uh, malcolm x and i'm assuming he is an influence um as he is to a lot of young muslims and um non-muslims alike 
but he does p strike a particular chord. So my question to you is, what is your approach to activism? Like, what is your style of activism? My style of activism is the one that, that never ends. I think my style of activism is the one that I apply to my everyday. I think Islam is activism. So maybe some people may think that that's weird, but I think Islam is activism. Um, when you're thinking about giving back to the poor and things like that, that's how I relate it. But I think I'm very much so like um, Malcolm X, or, or I, I understand where Malcolm X is coming from with this, by any means necessary. And, you know, I, I spoke my my I spoke my mind, and, and, you know, I've upset a lot of white folks because of it, but by any means necessary. They want to kick me out of school? Let them do it. They want to impeach me? Let them do it. I, I'm not afraid for what's going to come my way. I know what I did was right. I know that I stood with the right people. I know I can, I can go to sleep at night knowing that I did the right thing. I don't have a heavy heart. More my heavy heart is the pain that, that's being caused right now because right now for some reason people can see the type of Islamophobia, the type of racism, the white supremacy that we've been talking about for years and all of a sudden it's like, Masuma, you uncovered this thing that people are shocked about. And I can't, I can't understand why people are shocked about it. So, for me, it's activism is is in everything. Activism is is a way of life, I would say. And I think that it's something. It doesn't like you know my thoughts are are how we can decolonize. My my works are in how we can decolonize. My career path is in how I can support marginalized. Like that that's where my life is. So. I, I'm I'm not afraid to die in this in this work. That's something I've already accepted. I know that um, people who try to bring change don't usually live a long life, and that's something that I, I recognize. So um, it's something that I'm willing to die for because I'd rather speak my mind and 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 be free in some sort of way and 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 stand up for those who need it than die being silent. I'd rather die uh, than not say anything. Wow. That, I mean, I couldn't ask for more inspiring, a more inspiring statement, frankly. <laughs> but do stay safe, I think, for much, much longer. I mean, like, if, 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 I, I already recognize that. It's, it's, you saw, you can see it with every, every figure. So, I mean, uh, so going back to, to the Dalhousie issue, um, mm. we can briefly touch on this is that uh so dalhousie last week uh rescinded the complaint that was launched by the by the the whiny um uh white guy uh, <laughs> i don't know who he is um but, uh, uh so so dalhousie rescinded their comment uh they set out a response they didn't mention you in it how do you feel about the response and what sort of further work needs to be done in terms of changing the what is fundamentally a white supremacist institution? Yes, I know that's a loaded question, but... Oh, no, oh, it's definitely uh, loaded, but I think it's loaded with the right questions. Um, you know, that that whole thing, you can definitely tell Dahazi was being pressured. I'm going to answer this in two parts. Okay. So, Dahazi definitely being pressured. The whole world saw what Dahazi was doing. Um... And this was, I, I, I see their way of, of sort of, of, of taming that fire. Um, you know, they, they lied in the memo that they put out that they consulted with me. They never consulted with me. Um, they never talked to me. I got the memo the same time as every other student. In fact, I got an email from the university three minutes 
before the memo went out. So I didn't even know. Students knew before I knew. Um, they didn't engage with me like at all before the process. And the thing that's so messed up about it all is that this case wasn't given any new information. In July, the vice provost, Arig Al-Sheba, knew that I was getting violent messages and still proceeded. So nothing has changed in this entire case that all of a sudden the vice provost was saying uh, from the beginning, I don't have the power to take this case away. All of a sudden the power came and fell on her lap and she and she withdrew the case. I I don't know. It's it's just it's it's too fishy. Um, you know, uh, there's something black in this doll, I have to say. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, it, it makes no sense um, to just do it all of a sudden. Because, you know, they, they made a point at every point that they were being questioned. They justified their stance against me. They justified, you know, this, this complaint that Michael Smith put forward was an incredibly racist complaint. It was filled with racist nuance. So they validated that, and then they, they just withdrew the case. So... Yeah, I, you know, I still don't have, like, an actual apology. I, I still don't have, um, you know, uh, you know, this vice provost asked to meet with me one-on-one, -on -one, um, which is not what I'm going to do. I, I don't think it's appropriate for the president of the university to tell me that he only cares about me because he's the president. Really, man. You think it was going to be heartwarming to tell me that you care about me because your $400,000 job makes you? You didn't care about me at all. You didn't care about me at all. You didn't reach out at the beginning. You didn't even offer to meet me in the beginning. You just wanted a phone call. You, you took my lawyer out of the entire equation and they kept going over my lawyer to me. Do you think I was going to be that stupid and respond to you just like that after you did all this to me? They have a long way to grow. They, they need to see, they, the fact that, you know, this president has gone through two scandals, Dow Dentistry and, and this one, and hasn't actually made any changes, the, the changes in that university are, are nothing. I can tell you, I've been there the entire time. I've been there for five years. Every year the tuition fees go up. Every year there's more international students that have no support. Every year the grad students are dealing with more racism in their faculty and policies that aren't made for them every year there's more sexualized violence on our campus and more 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 um more rapes on our campus but security only reports five for the entire year every year it's like that so don't tell me that you're doing anything when you can invest they literally invested a m over a million dollars into celebrating Dalhousie's 200th anniversary Instead of putting this money towards marginalized students, instead of putting the money towards educating students on consent culture, instead of putting the money towards reducing tuition fees, instead of putting the money towards a food, our food bank for students or, or for support for students, they literally put it towards parties where they can get more money from alumni. Why would you invest in this school? I invested enough and I'm tired. I'm done. And what's ironic is that um, this whole case of the Canada 150, I mean, so Can Canada Day is celebrated on the 1st of July, and uh, as far as I know, I don't think there's any university that's open for regular tuition during July. So no. it's not regularly celebrated at Dalhousie. The Dalhousie Student Union has never like had a celebration for Canada Day, as far as I know, for years. 
because our student union building is closed. It's just, it's, it was, we weren't doing anything anyways. Like, this motion was just literally a, let's take some solidarity. Like, there's so, like, Ryerson uh, Students Union was doing it. Algoma was doing it. Like, come on, we're in the land of the Mi'kmaq. Cornwallis walked these shores. Like, we need to do something. This is ridiculous. Our, our city still has this person who committed genocide up on a pedestal and won't take him down. So effectively, you were punished for an ideological stand of solidarity. Yeah. That was seen as potentially ruining the image of the university, which I think they're doing a fairly good job on themselves. Yeah. Let's be real. No, on top of that, when, when all this was happening, there were uh, people who were emailing me saying, I'm not going to donate to this university or give any funding to this university because they're not celebrating Canada Day. So they they sided. They sided with the very rich, white, and privileged. They sided. And it's, it's very apparent. Because they still, um, you know, they still aren't, like, I'm literally telling them what I need from them, and they can't do it. Security, the Dow security was supposed to call me back at 2 p.m. today. Did they call me back? No. They haven't asked me how I've been doing. I had to email them to tell them to check up on me. Um, how is it like? being back on campus um specifically now uh in this time of uh where your your name is in the news where there's a lot of still a lot of controversy it's been reignited since uh june july um how has it been like for you on campus uneasy i think i i i don't walk around by myself i think um I don't feel comfortable in a lot of spaces. I, you know, I'm lucky I'm getting support from my faculty. Um, they recently and, published a, a letter, I think it was signed with 20 faculty members in support yeah, of but, you. Yeah, but our dean didn't sign it, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Wow. Um, the dean of arts didn't sign it, Frank Harvey. But that's okay. I, you know, I'm, I'm more worried about, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. I am a student. I have to make sure that I graduate and get out of this institution because it's literally so oppressive and I can't stand to be here longer than I than I should. Um, so I, you know, I'm I'm feeling uneasy because it's there's a lot of rhetoric happening and a, a lot of people are seeing me as oh that's Masuma Khan she's not a human being, you know. So have people and, been um, like calling you out in public? Has anybody kind of accosted you? I, it's you know, I've heard whispering, but, like, I I also am trying not to listen. You know, I, I don't think it's going to benefit me to watch out. But I, I have noticed, like, myself, you know, even when I, I, was, I didn't want to take the security threats uh, seriously myself, my brain automatically, when I was walking, um, I was listening to footsteps. And then I had a moment with myself. I said, whoa, why are you listening to footsteps? I said, holy crap. My body's literally telling me that these are the things I need to do to survive because it recognizes a threat, even though I don't want to, right? So, like, the body works in, in weird ways. So I've been trying to keep a, a low profile. I've been going to the things that I need to go to because I'm still a vice president and I have to be accountable to students and I'm, I'm making sure. But I, I also i am I'm incredibly exhausted by all this work and I'm incredibly exhausted by the lack of support of the university and 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 just like them not taking responsibility for this it's it is so demeaning they ought to have known better themselves
And um, as you mentioned earlier, you have uh, you have a lawyer. So I am assuming there is a case being launched. Um, can you go into any specifics of that at all at this point? Um, not yet, but uh, you know it, it doesn't end here. Um, I think there's going to be more conversations soon about what you know what what the next part looks like, and you know we're going to hold the university accountable. There's, I'm not going to get a hush money kind of settlements and just keep quiet. No. I'm going to be talking about this for the rest of my life. I will never let anyone forget what Dahaz University did because I have spent five years there. My mother went there. My, my, my family's gone through so much racism as students being on that campus. That's just my family. And they put me through this and they put so many other students through it. Yeah, like, I, I wish I could tell you what I've seen on that campus, but I can't even. So the fight's definitely far from over, and oh. there's there's next steps happening. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> to round off the, the discussion, um, for anyone listening who wants to get into activist work, um, bearing in mind the, the trials and tribulations that you personally have faced, and many activists have faced throughout the years, uh, what advice would you give to anyone who's looking to get into this kind of work? Make sure you have a solid foundation with your family. Because when you, uh, if you don't have some sort of understanding or if you don't have some sort of person you can lean on or some sort of support group, you can get lost in this work. And, you know, this work has definitely taken over my life and my mother has seen it. But, you know, it's different when I can come home right now. My mother understands that I'm under a lot of stress. And she knows that I'm taking on a lot of work. And she's supportive. She's not like, why weren't you home earlier? Like those little things, you know? Mm-hmm. So it makes life more easier to, to deal with if you say, yes, I'm a brown 22-year-old woman. And I live with my mother, obviously. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, tw- I'm 20, nearly 27. I still live with my parents. It's yeah. <laughs> and my sister's, tw- yes, my sister's 26. She still lives with my mom, too. So it's just like, we yeah. Stand in solidarity with we say she says we stand in solidarity with each other. That's amazing. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I think talking about white supremacy and challenging these structures isn't easy. Um, taking on that work isn't easy. It's exhausting because people are constantly questioning your identity and who you are, and then you start to question who you are to yourself. Like, am I? What have I done? Is this right? Did I do the wrong thing? Everyone's mad at me. Um, but at the end of the day, you just sort of. You, you got to do what you got to do, and this is what I'm doing. And I have to live my life um, the way that I'm satisfied with. And the way that I'm satisfied with it is by not staying silent to these atrocities that are happening. And it doesn't have, ma- matter if it's happening in Palestine, in Burma, in um, Syria, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, wherever it is, Malaysia, Indonesia, it, Italy, I... Spain, I Greece, I it it injustice is injustice, and when when race comes into play, systemic racism is a a structure that we've been trying to get rid of for a long time. White supremacy is something that we've been trying to get rid of for a long time. You know, the world right now, neoliberalism, this capitalist society was structured around, um, you know, us. Brown folks, black folks, and indigenous bodies being the main force of work, um, and women staying at home. So I, I think when you recognize those things and you recognize how how 
how wrong that is and how that's continuing to happen in this very neoliberal we'll just make all the Chinese and all the Indian folks make our clothes and then we'll send it here and, and make uh, Canadians pay top price for it. Um, I think we can recognize that that is also an issue uh, and that it's, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough line of work, but I can tell you that you, when you leave this earth from your work, you, you know you, leave, you left it a better place and you created safer spaces for our children. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Um, for, uh, for, for those who um, want to find you online or follow your work or learn more about it, uh, please let us know where uh, we can find you. Yeah, you can follow me on Facebook. It's Masuma Asad uh, Khan. And you can um, check me out on Instagram. It's A-F-G-K-H-A-N. Um, on Instagram or Mac ninety five one hundred one on Twitter, and I'll include links to all of those in the show cool. description. Um, Thank you. Once again, please stay safe, stay vigilant, yeah. keep yes. on doing, fighting the good fight. Oh, for sure, for you <laughs> and me. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. for everyone. Um, yeah. And thank you again. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. This is my pleasure too. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Now, before I wrap up, I am sure you have noticed, or maybe you didn't, but I'll bring it to your attention now. I no longer introduce the show as No Nazar, the show where we spill the chai on what it's like to be Desi, or what it's like to be Asian or South Asian. It's now No Nazar, the show where we spill the chai on the diaspora, or what it's like to be from the diaspora. Now, I think that it's important to explain why I've changed the, I guess, positioning of the show. It's not been so much of a conscious decision as it has been me sort of kind of embracing the flow of the show itself and sort of the way it's drifted and I think in all things it's always important to grow and go with the way of the wind or the way of the river um so i've decided that i should open myself up to all of the stories that i've been hearing lately that have been filtering through my inbox or my twitter or through my facebook i think it's important because there's a lot of shared experience in being south asian and talking to somebody who is from afghanistan like masuma is or who's from uh, the middle east or who's from the african diaspora or from the caribbean diaspora even all of my friends that i've kind of grown up with and sort of chopped and changed and shifted with throughout uh, my life have been from a variety uh, of different countries and identities but the majority of my friends have all had one thing in common and that is that they have uh, hyphenated uh, identities and nationalities and I think that it's important for the show to kind of reflect that because the feedback I have gotten from No Nazar has been not just from the South Asian community but it has also come from the wider diasporic community so 
I hope that this is a welcome change. Actually, I don't hope. I know it will be a welcome change. If you have a problem with it, I mean, frankly, uh, write an op-ed about it. I don't know. I don't really care. Um, I think that, if anything, this has opened up even more stories and even more opportunities for me to talk to all sorts of different, unique and fantastic people. And I'm sure if you're listening, you are one of those unique and fantastic and special people. So please feel free to contact me if you have a question or a concern about the show or if you feel like you've got a story that you want to share on the show. Um, You don't have to have done something incredible and huge and of the national interest to merit being on this show. You can just have a story or an opinion on something. Um, If you want to have a chat, I think that this is a great platform to feel like you can share your thoughts and feelings. So, you can contact me uh, via the email, which is thenonuzzershow at gmail.com, through Twitter, which is at thenonuzzershow, uh, through Facebook, which is facebook.com slash nonuzzershow, and of course the website www.nonuzzershow.com and... No, it's not nonuzzershow.com, it's just www.nonuzzer.com, but case in point, before I release this show, I should probably buy that domain in case somebody really cheeky decides to steal it. Um, But yeah, I think that's it. Oh, and also, of course, um, use the hashtag nonuzzershow and anything on any social media platform. Um, maybe Bebo, I don't know if anyone's still active on Bebo. Can you even use hashtags on Bebo? I have no idea. Uh, currently it is 1.38am and I am going to google Bebo and whether or not that's still alive. But anyways, uh, yeah, use that hashtag and I usually, um, I'm always checking it. So I will, uh, be sure to check that out and, uh, yeah. Also, one other thing, I'm going to be in London uh, in two weeks' time. So, from December 4th to the 19th, maybe longer, I'm not sure, um, I'll be in London. Uh, I will be fairly busy, but if any of you want to meet up with me, um, have a chat, want to be on the show, I will be more than happy to come meet you and have a chat and have talk. As long as you're not a Mad Axe murderer, uh, I make it a general rule not to talk to Mad Axe murderers. And so far, that rule has benefited me very greatly in life, so I'd like to stick to it. Um, Okay, that's enough rambling for me. I am currently at the 50 minute mark, and I'm pretty sure you you lot are very tired of listening to me. So that is all, and I shall see you all next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.